0: Welcome to Talk Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. In this episode, I am speaking with Matthew Perkowski. Matt is an enigmatic character, and I'd say one of Twitter's most incisive thinkers, offering penetrating insights into things ranging from representations of value, the many problems of social media platforms and how we interact with them, the evolution of society, designing emergent systems, among many other things. In our conversation, we cover the real substance underlying Jordan Peterson's main body of work and its implications for our ethics, the role money plays in scaling social groups, specialization as epistemic speciation, social media and our incoherent information environments, emergent system design, among many other things. You can find show notes for this conversation on my website at samhbarton.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by sharing it on social media or by becoming a patron. For as little as $2 a month, you can help make this podcast possible. Head to samhbarton.com for more information or head directly to patreon.com slash Sam H. Barton. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matthew Pikowski. I think we may cover some of the, um, the same topics in our conversation, because like, I'd like to, you know, I think it's worth exploring some of your background, because I think it's quite interesting, and like, just like your intellectual journey. Because I, st- I would still have no idea how to describe what you do. But it's very interesting
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean uh, we all do many things right I, we have to separate these i there there are ways in which I pay the bills right yeah. um, and I'm increasingly over time attempting to align the way in which I pay the bills with my other interests in research. That said, for quite some time after I graduated college, I decided instead of pursuing more academic research to go into um, sort of the emerging field of software application development and yeah. applied a lot of my, my intellectual background to that for some time. And, you know, I guess the place people will be most familiar with was that I worked with Netflix for a while. Um, before that, I worked with some other companies that people might know. But, but yeah, I mean, that was a very interesting um, period of development because I felt that the way in which people were beginning to increasingly interact with applications, software applications along every dimension of their life and along every dimension of their values, um, opened up a lot of opportunities for me to try to apply the knowledge I had gained in my previous education around, uh, evolutionary psychology, um, Mm -hmm. and, and trying to understand how these new technological media were interacting with and providing certain new types of feedback to, um, our, our brains, both the parts of our brains that are more plastic and adaptive and novel and the parts of our brains that are much deeper and have a lot more inertia behind them. And the way that this is all interacting both in the individual, but then as it interacts with individuals and those interact, those individuals interact with one another, a whole other pattern begins to emerge in terms of a new mode of connection and and all that. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was like, that was my original professional reality. Um, I've been doing a lot more research lately along the sort of mathematical and complexity science aspect of things, trying to understand emergent systems and understand what it means to try to design emergent systems. That's something we could talk about. Um, Also, if you want to go even back further in my history, you know, I have like a whole educational trajectory, but I think actually a lot of what, I mean, perhaps upon reflection, the more I've thought about my, my life path, the more I do think or feel that, some unique aspects of my sort of childhood trajectory uh had a pretty deep impact on the way i see the world and perhaps that's unique as well so wherever you want to go it's yeah yeah.
0: so i think there's two broad areas that i'd like to cover in our discussion one is something that i don't think gets enough attention um and that's just jordan peterson and his main body of work like the, Mm -hmm. the stuff that he's like dedicated his life to i think he tends to get a lot of um People tend to focus on like him placed in uh, contemporary social contexts and his interpretations of them, and they mm-hmm. focus on his view of you know the problems that we're facing today, but they just kind of completely discount maps of meaning and you know everything that he dives into there. So I'd like to I, I watched your interview with uh, Jordan. It was very good. One, I think it was one of my favorites. Um, so I'd like to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. Uh, about that because I think what that does is it'll lead into discussions of um, creating this new emerging global society in the, uh, you know, or attempting to create a a global society that works and that ensures the survivability of not only our species, but all life. So I think I want to start with the Jordan Peterson stuff because I think there's like a kernel of what could be seen as the underlying, uh, morality or ethics that will actually guide the development of these of these systems because i think it's actually onto something that is grounded in the material world right we use this metaphysical religious language to describe these things and there's been this this um not an easy way to bring together our understanding of the material world and um well ethics but i think through like what complexity science is doing and what uh, Jordan Peterson has done is kind of bridge these things. And so I'd like to explore that and then how they may, how that may translate into building a better world. And then, you know, your thoughts on what we need to consider that, because I think that you're a, a very, um, what's the word? It's, it's a bit early, so it's escaping me. But, um, I think that you're a social, you're in a way a social critic or just a, a you know, I think you've got a very, very unique perspective and one that needs to be shared more widely. Um, and I think perhaps one of the reasons why you're not, you know, why you don't have 100,000 followers is just because you use such precise language, which is necessary, but it's impenetrable to many unless they've done like a lot of the reading. Like, you know, I, I'll, I'll read something that you've, done, that you've written and I'll have to go and look up, the, I'll have to go and do a whole set of research um, to, to really make sense of it. And I know you've said that you do that on purpose and I, I, you know, I appreciate it. And I, it's been a, it's been a wonderful journey over the past couple of years, um, you know, uh, kind of coming on this intellectual journey with you in a way.
1: Well, I really appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, it means a lot to me that some element of that uh, desire for, I guess a kind of, I don't want to use the word purity. I think it's more of a, a certain, so I was asked in another conversation I had recently um, about you know what makes a heuristic either useful or potentially damaging and I think the, the tack I took on that is an idea around how information gets compressed, right So how you actually take a very complex picture and how you compress that image of reality down to something that can be easily. Uh, Held in one's head and applied uh, in the moment that it is necessary or useful, right? And and then the question then becomes, well, if it it is then possible to do that with differing degrees of success, right? And um, and it it can look different when you compress information down to something that is uh, a lot more terse, a lot fewer words. And so, you know, as you noted on Twitter, one of the things that like I actually. I don't really want, in some ways, I don't really want a lot of notoriety. I don't want a lot of recognition. I would like to have the right conversations with the right people that can help perhaps catalyze um, patterns of of social progress and development that are um, sort of metastable as opposed to getting involved in a lot more of the, I mean, and this, this is kind of a segue into Jordan Peterson because I wanted to lay a little bit of that framework because I think what happens when most people come across his, Content, um if you look at any sort of any person as a uh think of them like a um uh, any other object with like multiple facets. So think of it like a multiple-sided die that you might roll. And on any roll, you might have a particular side of that multifaceted die that lands face up. And um the way that a lot of the our current communications technologies work is that you know it's very easy for a a very complex person to be presented only through the lens of that one face that happens to be up at this one time for some set of circumstances, some, some circumstantial reason. And with Jordan Peterson, you know, that was because he, uh, he took a very, uh, he took a very firm stand on a particular issue that had a lot of complexity and reasoning behind it. Um, but then he was obviously thrust into the limelight, um, within that context. And that had upsides and downsides. I mean, the upside was that he was able to share a lot more of the other kinds of thinking that he does, uh, which we can get into in a moment, which I think is, is a highly synthetic kind of thinking that is both absolutely necessary to the next generation of social evolution and social structures, um, emergent structures. And it also has a lot
0: sort of interject, but mm -hmm. what do you mean by synthetic? Do you mean like synthesis or that which Mm -hmm. is not, um, like organic
1: well so the i think the the what i do mean is synthetic in terms of synthesis right the the more original meaning of the word we've come to use the label synthetic to mean man-made because of the fact that we've associated the ability to bring pieces together into some sort of novel and recognizable technology with um the capacity of the human to create things right so we 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 create this distinction between organic and synthetic that is not actually as real as one might imagine. Um, But also what what I'm really getting at is that the synthetic mind or the synthetic mode of thinking is that which can reach across traditional boundaries of specialization. And uh, because we're sort of in a late stage phase of a world in which the vast majority of our interaction with knowledge and information and uh, professionalization has been hyper specialized. Um, The synthetic thinker in the early 21st century often shows up as someone who is stepping on a lot of toes. Um, And there are a lot of people who will reactively respond to anyone who attempts to cross those boundaries. Um, and also it's hard to parse whether someone is of high quality or not, right? Because if there's no special if, if there's no one who's an expert in the same ten fields, then uh, who's supposed to be able to verify or validate that the person who's talking about uh, issues that cross those ten fields is speaking something about something interesting and not nonsensical right? So we're grappling with all of these challenges, but we're in this place where, this this kind of transdisciplinary synthetic thinking has never been more needed, but we've also, we're we're also in a position where it's never been more difficult to accept, uh, especially for some people who have made entire careers and risen to the top of their specialized fields. So I think, you know, Jordan Peterson got it from both sides where he got it from people who are first of all, really upset with the political stance he took um, or the way that they perceived his political stance through that one political facet of his identity, but then also uh, he got it in many other ways from people who perhaps also disagreed with him politically, but felt that he was treading on their turf uh, intellectually, right? And they they didn't see the content in their fields. Like, ah, uh, for example, um, when he's talking about uh, religious studies, or if he's talking about uh, let's say um, let's say he's talking about something like a. A power law distribution of different uh, phenomenon in social reality, um, and he's connecting something like a power law distribution to the way that uh, social or creatures uh, organize themselves with respect to the hierarchical organization. Well, it might be the person that's used to using statistics to understand power law phenomenon doesn't really connect the phenomenon of a of a power law with. The biological dynamics that give rise to hierarchical relations, right? But because he's looking at two fields, and because he's trying to create a narrative and story and communicate that to the public, um, he's going to aggravate certain people who, who don't see those connections. So I don't know, but he, but he's a, by, the, by the same token, that's the exactly the kind of um, that's exactly the kind of sense making that we need in the world mm. uh, today.
0: And there's also loss that occurs when you're trying to bring together such disparate, complex. Uh, you know, fields that have, you know, centuries or, you know, decades of uh, of research and work behind them, uh, when mm-hmm. you try to co- combine them and then communicate how that synthesis uh, comes together, those who are really well versed in specific aspects of it will actually recognize potential issues. Um, and this reminds me of, I started writing a piece a while ago on uh, basically the, the importance of, uh, like a good like drafts. What I, what I mean by draft is like a, f- a first go at something and mm. how that Jordan Peterson is a great example of someone who has brought together um, a, comp- a variety of different fields and, and uh, insights and has combined them in a way that uh, really touches on something um, fundamentally true or something that's very important. However, he may, he's not, it's not a completely accurate representation of what's going on or I might say it as, um, he's not right 100% of the time because, like, when you're going, when you're uh, combining all these different things, you may misrepresent something or you may slightly misunderstand something. So, your representation may not be 100% correct, but it's correct enough for other people to build upon. And I think when people, rec- when people um, uh, come across his work, sometimes they may see, they may see him um, express something in, in a way that actually isn't quite right they discount a lot of the other stuff that he has to say. But I think it's like, um, you know, if you, if you think about it in like the, the zero to one Peter Thiel perspective, uh, when you're creating something new, like going from the horse, car- horse and carriage to the, uh, to the car, the first car wasn't very good, but it could be iterated upon and made that much better. And even uh, made better than the, the best horse and carriage, but it might've been that way initially. So, so I guess my point is like, um, I think he gets a lot of his insights gets, uh, they get, they get discounted because there's this, they're a, are a draft in a way. And he's, he's, he's one man. There's only so much uh, one person can do, uh, when it comes to assimilating all the information in out there and trying to p- piece it together.
1: Yeah. I mean, these ideas have been, people have been recognizing patterns like this in the way that individuals make sense. Within or across fields for for some time, I think the uh, the mathematician Freeman Dyson he he categorized mathematicians as either uh, birds or frogs. Right, and certain the, the bird types are those that would fly across many fields and try to make observations from a from an elevation that um, allows for a particular expansive viewpoint, but that doesn't include the detail of the picture that. The frogs on the ground in the thick of it in the mud right inside all of the small details um you know, they live inside those details they they live at ground level right and so and you have this tension between these two perspectives and it's not necessarily that either of them is um like this is this interesting question of accuracy right it, 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 it's not as if like i think it's actually very difficult for somebody to make the case that there's an inherent accuracy of a particular uh, characterization that transcends all perspectives, right? So it's like, for example, the accuracy of a uh, description of a, uh, of a molecule, uh, from the perspective of a physicist versus the perspective of a chemist versus the perspective of a biologist, right? In terms of the relevance of that particular molecule to processes on different levels of complexity or different orders of complexity in relation to different structures of different magnitudes, right? Or you could make you, can, you could humanize this more and say something along the lines of like, let's say that you have a girlfriend or a fiance or a wife um, and you have a particular kind of relationship and you two have a particular viewpoint on your relationship in terms of how it feels to be in it. But then your friends or your society or the other people around you who observe you two together, they have their own perspective on um, your dynamics from the outside in, so to speak. And, you know, is one of those more accurate than the other? Or are they simply describing the way that that same phenomenon relates to other phenomena in different of different types, in different ways, right? And I think that the latter way of looking at that is a more accurate way of, well, is, is a, uh, uh, is a higher fidelity representation of reality. That being said, it's much more difficult to try to hold all that in our heads because at the end of the day, we have to act in the moment. We have to simplify things to, um, a kind of logic that works, uh, from moment to moment in terms of a life well lived, uh, not just a life most accurately represented. So, you know, these are these issues that we're confronting. And I think, you know, the issues when someone like Peterson, um, uh, attempts to synthesize across many fields, uh, by definition will mean that the resolution within each field has to suffer some, um, has to become slightly more, uh, slightly more coarse. And, but what that does not mean or what that should not mean is that, uh you then go and ask a specialist to discount the entire picture because the view from the bird does not match the view from the frog right it's it's an entirely different way of thinking about things so yeah that's that's kind of what i would say or what how i would think about that
0: yeah i really like the the bird and the frog uh metaphor uh, that maps onto the the way i i see these things as well um and I think that was Freeman
1: Dyson, but fact check me on that. So
0: <laughs> I, I have a habit of saying, I think this is what this person said, but I could be completely wrong. So please you know, go to your own research because yeah, I make those mistakes all the time. Um, yeah. it kind of, this makes me think of, uh, the pursuit, like the the project of science and how our scientific theories are never completely accurate. Right. But they are good enough to deal with the set of problems in the space that they're working in and that, uh, science is a constant is, is a, we're constantly moving forwards and developing new frameworks that enable us to deal with the questions, uh, that we're, well, the questions that we have in that local space. Um, but after a while, we exhaust those, uh, the, the we exhaust the, uh, the capabilities of the tools that we're using, all the concepts that we're using. And then we have to invent, New ones, but at the time the the uh the theories that we're using are good enough right like for example we used to think that the speed of light we used to think that light propagated through ether right um now even though that was completely wrong it didn't stop us from being able to do uh to from understanding uh well uh what am i trying to say here um it didn't stop us from doing some um, cosmological stuff. Like it didn't really matter uh, if um, light traveled through ether or not, we could still make predictions about gravitational lensing perhaps or or whatever. So um, it's, it's something that's, I guess, kind of true universally that our concepts uh, they cannot adequately, or they cannot represent whatever they try, whatever they're mapping onto entirely, but they can do so that in a way that is good enough and good enough means survival a lot of the time, that's like the, that's Yeah, the,
1: yeah. I mean, I think that, that, that goes, that also goes back to something that was quite, I think, controversial in terms of certain conversations that Peterson had with Sam Harris about the nature of truth, right? And I think it's one of those things that's very difficult for, um, for people to wrap their minds around because of the fact that it is inherently circular, and we've spent thousands of years convincing ourselves that circular, circular logic is bad logic because it's circular, right? <laughs> um, and circularity is bad. Well, you know, this is the issue where where one realizes that anytime one creates an axiomatic framework, we've, we've sort of pulled a little, pulled a little trick, right? Where we've artificially broken the, the circularity that would otherwise have to be there. Um, And then just push that circularity onto something like obvious perception or obvious evidence, empirical reality, right? A straight line in Euclid's time was straight because it was obviously straight on the surface of the earth uh, when you drew it. And you could draw it a million times and you drew those two parallel lines and they would not intersect with one another, right? Um, Well, we know that actually (laughs) that's not necessarily the case in four-dimensional space-time, But that depends on, like you said, being able to move from the context in which the initial axioms were created and then those gave rise to an entire field of geometry, which was very rich in terms of its ability to understand uh, Euclidean space and rigid body dynamics within Euclidean space and gave us a much better grasp upon this world in in, in some ways, right? But it also changed the way that we thought of the world. And then there's this interesting interplay between the what the tools you create enable in terms of behavior and also how the way they change the way you see the world impacts the way you use those tools. Right. And this is one of those interesting points, which, you know, which I think is one of the things that people choke on most when someone like Peterson talks about the, 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 if you take pragmat the pragmatic perspective all the way to its, um, to its logical conclusion, uh, and and say that, well, if your idea of truth, or if your idea of accuracy leads you to create things that are self-terminating, then in a way, that's a sort of falsity in which the axioms you were operating on destroyed themselves, right? And 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 then out of that, you can start to work towards a kind of evolutionary morality in the sense that the kind of behaviors that are Moral with respect to the agency we have over our use of technology are those uh, behaviors that are in concordance with the ability for the game to be Played and iterated across time in a way that not only sustains itself That's just the base condition the base necessity but above and beyond the base necessity of uh, sustainability or recursion um, ideally this game also self enriches and this is this interesting aspect of uh, systems that simultaneously become uh, more complex and in theory more stable uh, as opposed to those which as they complexify also add complications and therefore uh, often collapse under the weight of their uh, complications and so you know this whole picture of evolution and adaptation and morality and interaction between our creations and the way we think about and perceive the world, all of this is encoded into this really unique, but somehow, sometimes difficult to wrap one's head around idea of pragmatic truth. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I guess um, there's a few of the things you mentioned, um, particularly around how this uh, increase in complexity can either uh, result in uh, well degradation, or it can uh, stabilize and then lead to greater complexity uh, and order. And I think that really characterizes where we are at now, uh, where the time that we are living in right now, uh, with you know interconnected global society and um, the the perils that we face. But I think I'd like to come to, to, to cover that towards the perhaps the end of the, the conversation. To begin with, mm-hmm. I think um how do you if you were to and this I'm giving you a tough question because I think this is this is um I don't think even the man worth thinking about man yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> but how would you um if you were to summarize um, Jordan Peterson's viewpoint, but in particular um his what he what he speaks about with regards to chaos? And order and the world the worlds that we live in and how we interact with these um these two you could say primordial entities or concepts um, what do you think is the the his the fundamental point or observation in how we in, in what I would say is our like the, the ethic that has kind of emerged but also um, is embedded or uh within ourselves within you know, life or even just human society. Yeah. I mean, you're kidding. That's, I mean, I, um, I have my own ideas about it so we can, you don't need to give it all, but like you don't need to go. Um,
1: certainly I mean, if, if we were going to, if I were going to try to be as concise as I could be while still retaining accuracy and also deferring to anyone, uh, who I'm trying to characterize in terms of their, uh, desire to correct anything i've said right if if any if, if i say anything that doesn't actually resonate um, i would be happy to be corrected but based on my reading of his work and of the things that he's stated publicly i would assume you know to me there's a relationship a deep relationship between you know the the archetypal ideas as represented uh, by chaos as that which is capable of Um, dissolving or destroying, but also renewing and birthing, right? And it's interplay with, you know, order, which is um, that which is capable of uh, crystallizing or, or creating patterns that are sustainable and also perpetuating those same patterns and the fact that those two are always in dialogue with one another in any living system and that the very process of living or what we identify as life is in essence, the interplay of those two forces. Um, and this is also why things like the uh, the yin-yang symbol and the notion of Taoism figure so heavily as well in his descriptions of the way that, you know, these archetypal uh, forces interact. And you know, that's also why the Taoists felt this because they were looking at this idea of forces that, simultaneously are constantly engaged with one another, the interplay of chaos and order, constantly giving rise to the pattern and experience that we find ourselves within, but also this other interesting characteristic of each of those tendencies, wherein pushing too far into either of the extremities of either the chaos or the order of a given system will tend to give rise to um, the antithesis, right? So um, seeking for too much order relative to what is actually adaptive, will very quickly throw your civilization or your household or your mind into chaos, uh, seeking for too much chaos, the dissolution um, of what is simply because one dislikes it from their perspective uh, has a, you know, holds within itself a, a great potential for, for disorder and chaos. And that can lead to either you know, opportunities for growth uh, or, uh, dramatic collapses. So you could say, uh, I think the game of Thrones expression for it was like chaos is a ladder, right? You could look at it as this discontinuity as an opportunity for growth, which can be true and is true. Um, but it can also, if you, if you miss that window, if you don't thread the needle correctly, um, that, that chaotic discontinuity also becomes the, um, the sort of Hit into which you can very easily fall, and all all order that you didn't even realize you relied upon uh, dissociates and crumbles beneath your feet, and that's a very destabilizing idea. And then looking at that interplay uh, and generalizing it to um, both generalizing it to more social phenomenon, and then also showing how it emerges from um, evolutionary biology. You know, I think that's kind of the core of of, of the mind of Jordan Peterson, if you will. Right. Like that, that's, which is one of the reasons why I resonated with him because after studying a lot of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology and trying to, you know, I found him before he was controversial, uh, because I was studying people who were trying to apply, um, who were trying to bridge the connection between our narrative stories and our narrative, narrative encodings of, um, of the world through the religious lens and, and bridge those with, evolutionary game theory because that's what i was doing at the time i was really interested in that and that's how i came across him so i mean i don't know that that's sort of my lens into his core um mode of thought but yeah you can tell me what you think
0: i think that's a really good characterization of it um like i'm I'm impressed with how well you managed to to cover that because I, i think you're um bang on and one of the reasons why i think we may be coming at it from different perspectives but um i think we're both perhaps equally interested in it is because I think it's fundamentally true and it maps onto our understanding of the universe as it is, you know, thermodynamical laws, you know, uh, the entropy, how life seems to, uh, well, it it takes energy in and tries to minimize entropy, entropy locally. And Mm -hmm. there's this, um, if we think about these notions of chaos and order through this, you know, entropic, um, informational lens, then I think, um, these ideas, which I think really are at the root of our morality or our ethics. Um, Through these lenses, I think we can make huge, huge ground in how we not only um, live our own lives, but how we structure our societies. So when you spoke of, you know, order having a seed of chaos and chaos having seeds of order within it, um, you know, as represented, you know, uh, by the yin-yang symbol, um, the thing about order is there's always... Something out there that can uh, threaten us, right? Like order is the bounded space that is predictable and that yeah. and that we know. Well, it's analogous
1: to what we were talking about with respect to science or a given limit of a particular frame of uh, understanding.
0: Exactly, exactly. And to ensure order across time, um, given that we exist in this bounded space and that there are threats, not only our own actions can give rise to through you know just the our own interactions but also just the wider world around us we need to move into the realm of chaos to that which we don't understand and extract information useful information from that from that realm to increase local order um and that is exactly what life seems to do um yeah there's this idea that i i came across i think late last year uh and it's it's called the the free energy principle, and it's basically this idea or this observation. I don't think it's quite um, uh, testable so much, but um, it's, I think it's been highly useful. And it's that all of life seems to have a, uh, an internal model of the world, like a representation of, it, of the organism itself and how it is embedded uh, in the world. And that model seeks to minimize surprise. Um so it's very pragmatic. It's not about representing the world as it is. Um it's about representing the world in a way that minimizes its surprise. And you know, with surprise, we can think of that as just you know avoiding uncertainty, avoiding risk. If you if you're not gonna be surprised, you're able to if you're minimizing for surprise, you're able to navigate the world in such a way that um most likely ensures your survivability across time. And this is something that's um uh is seen, you know, in in all organisms uh, from what I can understand. And is, it's particularly, I think it's given rise to why human beings, why homo sapiens has actually ascended as a species because we have, I, we have uh, evolved the capacity for abstract representation, right? To, um, I think this is why we, we've actually, we, we've, progressed so much. It's because we've been able to abstract things from the world, give them concepts and then work with those. And, um, those concepts, uh, well, they may not, um, well, they may be, you know, very abstract, like th- these ideas of chaos and order, or, um, you know, the idea of friendship or whatever, um, they empower us to, uh, and, you know, through science and, and all of that to increase our understanding of the world around us, minimize un- uncertainty and create a better world for, for all of us. So I think that um, his notions of chaos and order and uh, the, the interplay of those and how they're fundamental is actually true from a material standpoint, and that by standing on the, on the border of chaos and order, um, we actually uh, maximize information uh, processing or information flow and are better equipped to deal with the world around us and I think this is, um, I think this has been shown like. In a, in a number of different areas. Like the, I think the brain tries to s- stand at that point on the, the boundary between chaos and order, like criticality. And I, I, th- I think this has been experimentally verified. I, I, I can't remember, but um, this is just, it's just one of the reasons, I know I went on a bit of a ramble there, but I, I think it's just one of why it's so fascinating because I think this is the first time, this is the first time in my experience that an understanding of the physical world can inform our ethical decision-making to
1: a, to a set degree. So yeah, there are a lot of directions to go there and it depends on how, how, how technical we want to go. I, I would say just um, maybe we'll work backwards. I would say that <laughs> because the last thing you said there was, I think perhaps one of the only things that you said in that entire, uh, uh, in that entire uh, elocution that, I'm not quite as on board with, because I do think that's what we've been trying to do for the entire duration of our, um, of our conscious codification of the world within representations. I, I do think that we've been attempting to distill and codify patterns that we recognize as transcendent Uh, beyond ourselves, what I would characterize as something like a platonic process as opposed to a platonic structure, Um, the kind of process that seems to play itself out or govern the interaction of things across scales and across periods of time, regardless of what kinds of things we're talking about um, or how long we're talking about, whether we're talking about the evolution of galaxies or whether we're talking about the social interaction of individual human beings. And so you know, I, I do think we've been trying to grapple with those representations for the entire course of human representational history. Uh, I just I think that we're sort of biased towards thinking a lot of those early representations were in some way um, laughably crude. Uh, but in the frame in which those people were creating them, they were certainly not laughably crude and we're increasingly recognizing many ways in which they were universal. Right. Um, and actually, in some ways that these understandings, even though we think that we pass them by, <laughs> keep reintroducing themselves, right? Um, as you see. In terms of the more information theoretic perspective on things, I don't know if you're aware of um Alex Wisner Gross or his causal entropic forces perspective on this. He was a physicist or mathematician, mathematical physicist. He studied MIT, very bright guy, created his own um artificial intelligence. Um company, I think, based on some of these ideas, but he was trying to codify algorithmically a lot of what you're talking about um, in terms of looking at and modeling an actual agent, whether it's a person or an animal, in terms of uh, can you create a very general representation of what it would mean for something to behave in a way that looks intelligent to us, right? And he, he created an algorithm that was able to essentially uh, just look at the degree to like, it is essentially the the ability to minimize surprise by understanding and analyzing the various types of um, trajectories. Um, and, and just trying to maximize its ability to, um, maintain degrees of freedom or optionality, so to speak. Right? So maintain its optionality of behavior while not putting itself in positions of maximum surprise that could damage its optionality of behavior and that behavior was defined very generally, such that the algorithm can be mapped to anything from trying to, you know, giving the algorithm to like a, a piece of, like a model of like a little platform that has a pendulum inverted on it and trying to balance the pendulum, right? So it has to move so that the pendulum doesn't fall or you know, even develop the, you know, use that algorithm to show that the the very basic logic of uh, of this causal entropic forces model was also sufficient if you added multiple agents into the system for cooperative dynamics to emerge, um, even out of what one might consider something uh, a self-interested agent, right? Uh, so they could actually co- start cooperating to achieve particular kinds of goals, like two agents moving a ball into a space that can only be done by two agents, right? And these, these algorithms are now being, and these perspectives are now being generalized by companies like Google and, and others um, and extend it into sort of more social game theory to model all of the various possible interaction dynamics. Um, like I think it was, I don't think it was like the NVIDIA and Google collaboration where they were, you know, instead of just very low resolution models, they actually had like little uh, computer simulations of um, individual agents trying to play certain games in a little video game. And then they zoom out and you see that, the one game is taking place in the space of all possible games, all being played out in massively parallel game space um, with these little agents exploring kind of like this multiversal hypothesis of, you know, all the possible paths of behavior. And then the machine was effective machine learning algorithm is effectively um, using that information to then understand not only what the most effective paths are for pursuing um, the obvious goals, but also using those to do innovative, like innovate in, in weird creative solutions that none of the humans would have predicted to these games. So, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that these truths as you're pointing out, hold on, they, they hold across so many different levels and generalize so well. I mean, that, that doesn't seem random at all. And, you know, it has so much to do with, you know, this notion of entropy, which from the information theoretic perspective is, um, the minimization of surprise, at least locally. But then there's also this question of, you know, well, the second law is dictating that, you know, generally, more broadly speaking, the entropy of the system is going to have to increase for the, um, for the local system to actually gain more order. You're going to have to put that waste energy out into the system and then, or the the larger system. And so then this question becomes one of, okay, well, if we're increasingly intelligent and increasingly, um, increasingly capable of ordering our local environment, um, we still find ourselves right back in the sort of yin-yang Taoism of the fact that at some point, unless we assume everything is infinite and we can infinitely project, both obtain energy and project waste heat, um, we start becoming subject to our own disorder, right? And then the question of like what the boundary of that is, is just one of what scale you're thinking about for the problem at hand. So right now, one of the big issues is, okay, well, what's happening with the the linearized processes of energy combustion that we have, which are then putting certain forms of waste into the environment and essentially increasing entropy in the environment. And you can then look at potentially the sort of social chaos that might ensue from some of the more um, catastrophic possibilities in terms of climatological shifts or change as a sort of direct representation um, of this desire for local order, giving uh, or adding to the larger system in which it's a part of uh, greater disorder and chaos that we were not sufficiently capable of foreseeing uh, or incorporating into the initial processes at hand, or we're in the process of trying to figure out how to do so. So, But like again, you can represent that archetypally and it works just as well. So yeah, I mean it's a fascinating space to pick all this apart, and I'm sure we could do it for hours.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, just on that on that point, um, you know, the from us creating habitable habitable order through you know the usage of combustion engines, for instance, um, and that giving rise to potential uh, chaos in the form of you know biosphere collapse or you know climate change and all of that. Um, if we manage to sort that problem out there's the, there's this, you know, the spiral of prosperity in a way. And, but it's, it maps, it's also, rep, it could be seen as uh, a, a proxy for it would be um, just the increase in complexity of our, of our societies. Like, I think complexity, however we want to measure it is like a good representation. Well, is the representation of how ordered a system is. Um, so that seems to be like one of the, 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 uh, the metrics for lack of a better term of, um, of progress. Like how ordered is the system? And that's where I see, that's where I see us. Uh, that, that's the problem. That That's where we're at right now where we've got these, um, these problems emerging from just, you know, what, what could be seen as uh, fundamentally good actions, you know, like the creation of uh, the combustion engine and cars and, uh, you know, electricity and all of that has done tremendous amounts of, of good for, you know, human beings. Right. And it, you know, if you think about Stephen Pinker's, you know, enlightenment now and how, you know, things have never been so good. um, While that is the case from our, from uh, these actions come potential consequences that we now need to, that we now need to deal with. So like the pendulum is kind of swung in the other direction um, from uh, us having to, uh, what am I trying to say here? Um, Now that we've, created a world and i I don't i don't really know how to phrase this but we need a different set of thinking uh we need to now reckon with the the consequences of our of the actions that have been very much so positive but for in order for this to be sustained across time we need to kind of uh consolidate and develop structures and frameworks that enable us to continue this level of progress without Mm -hmm. Uh, large-scale catastrophe
1: in the in the near future yeah I, so rewinding to the the definition or like the metricization of complexity so to speak I, this is something I've, I've written about a little bit and have done some work on and and also very much agree with in the sense that I think one of the best metrics one of the most pragmatic metrics for us to take into consideration or to to begin you know through which we should begin to view our behavior at all scales, both individually, as well as in our our families and in our societies and in our larger sort of species level interactions with with the world at scale, um, is the capacity to um, increase complexity, maintain or increase the complexity of the systems um, we create and in which we're embedded, uh, to increase that complexity uh, without, so basically, to maintain or com- increase that complexity without sacrificing uh, its own sort of metastability, right? its own capacity to um, renew and regenerate itself. And I uh, probably we shouldn't get too far into the weeds, but I've been doing a lot of research into um, ways of looking at sort of symmetry of fractal patterns in processes across time to be able to extract a metric of of how, uh, so sort of the evolution of, of stable complexity across time. So I very much agree with that. And then if we take that metric and we start applying it to the behaviors in question that we were talking about, and if maybe this will help to, to put more words around the idea that you were pointing to, is you know this notion that, just like we were talking about earlier, it's very rarely the case that we're able to take either mass or energy from a a living system that's already um, self-sustaining, such as for example, an an ecosystem or a forest or or some sort of aspect of a much larger um, cyclic process. Right. And even when we're talking about fossil fuels, um, those fossil fuels are embedded in our earth because of much larger cyclic processes. Right. And we're extracting and linearizing something that was once cyclical. Um, When we extract from a cyclic process, our self-sustaining process. Um, we are most often turning something that is complex uh, in that space into something that is merely complicated in our own space of creations. Um, so we're we're oftentimes reducing net complexity through uh, at least locally through our creations and turning things that can, for example, regenerate themselves through the process of reproductive, uh, you know, sexual evolution. Um, into things that can't like, you know, if I, if I show you like this tablet right here, like it's not going to reproduce any tablets was, which is like one of the major distinctions between the kinds of technologies that evolution has given rise to and the tech, not the kinds of technologies that humanity has thus far given rise to. And so this is why there's this massive jump that's required of us, uh, in terms of taking all of the complications that we are creating in the world that are, very useful in terms of uh, increasing and stabilizing our own local order uh, and and turning those or transforming those into um, systems that can reintegrate those flows of energy and materials into the ecosystems and contexts from which they once took in a way that allows both of those forms of complexity to equilibrate first and then rise together in a way that is actually mutually reinforcing or one of my favorite sort of (laughs) $10 <laughs> Ten dollar words is auto, autocatalytic, right? Which is it's like a mutually catalyzing relationship in which the interactions, the outputs of one of them, feed the inputs of the other, and then the outputs of the other feed the inputs of the first, right? And you you get this self reinforcing um, process that that actually maps very closely to the origin of life itself in terms of mo- you know, most of our research of, of how life itself emerged. And so what I'm what I'm getting at here is that all of these all of these arrows are beginning to point towards the fact that we need to catalyze an event that is much like the original event that itself gave rise to um, living or self-reproducing systems out of mere, um, out of mere molecules. And, and we need to begin thinking about our systems design in that way, through that lens, which is why I'm so interested in this category of thinking of, of sort of emergent systems design. Because, you know, that's exactly the lens through which I I view it. It's it's like, it's it's a necessary task. And either we learn to do this or we eventually, um, you know, the game ends for us. So,
0: Mm. yeah, yeah. That was a a really good way of of framing it all. Um, I guess we've kind of seen, um, humanity has been very, very anthropocentric in its thinking. And we, we see our, And I remember growing up this way, like not even really caring that much for for the natural world around me because I'm like, the only stuff that's important is, you know, the human world. And that sort of thinking that has, um, I guess you could say, characterized us. And, you know, it it has its roots in the fact that, you know, we think that we were, you know, we are uh, in representations of God and that we are almighty because we are, you know, capable of doing so much more than perhaps some of our um animalian relatives at least from one perspective um that we are separate from them but like i think as we're starting to see now with especially with movements like extinction rebellion and just the the uh the global challenges that we face that affect all of us that we are deeply and inextric, inextricably embedded within you know the biosphere the earth and that um the sooner we recognize this and i would i'd say even more importantly, represent that in our constitutions and our laws. Uh, the sooner we do that, the better, because it's—I think—it's necessary for the long-term survivability and, and thriving of our species. And the question of, like, you know, you're saying, how do we engineer these? Or you, you want to look into how do we engineer these um, emergent systems? Um, the, the specifics of, of, like, understanding how these systems operate and how they flow is, is one thing, but actually trying to um, catalyze the social, uh, movement that's necessary is also important because we, we can have all the, we can have all the tools that, um, I, I think all the tools are kind of out there. Like There's a lot of people who are working on these sorts of things, but we lack the, the, um, the social momentum for lack of a better term. We, we need a way of like taking this information and, and putting it in people's minds and then saying, this is, and, and trying to bring about these changes democratically in some way. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges of our time, because we, the knowledge that we have at our disposal is is you know incredible, right each of us has access to the library of the world through the internet. Um, I don't think a lack of knowledge or information is the problem. It's a matter of sense making it's a matter of disseminating that information ensuring that people are on the same pages in a way, and catalyzing action based upon that:
1: yeah, I, mean, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I think that you know I, I'm spending a lot of my time at the moment attempting to develop some tools that I hope will, will help with some, you know, with some of that. I think the the, there's a deeper, there's a deeper pattern that's, you know, you know, let's say you're, you're trying to catalyze this process. Um, well, as long as it's like, imagine like what's the fundamental goal, right? Like this goal is people, uh, are embedded in their lives Locally, um, a lot of those people embedded embedded in their local daily lives, they don't feel pain or suffering associated with the possible future that may be coming their way if they themselves don't spend some of their time and energy thinking or contributing to these greater problems. Right. So it, it, there's a little bit of a catch too where it's how do we how do you get someone to care how do you get people to extend their um, their sphere of both well, in time and space of consideration, right? How, how does how does one extend their sphere of consideration? Uh, and oftentimes, this is a process of um, you know of building up sort of psychological and emotional stability, um, economic capacity, uh, and and this is one of these reasons why you know you see development so frequently associated with uh, increased environmental awareness, right? Where you have these periods where people are very um, dirty, so to speak, in terms of our, um, our, our, our side effects until you start passing a certain point at which people gain the luxury to begin thinking um, about these side effects further in space and time. And, but, but then there's this question of like, well, is it, is it going to happen quickly enough? right? Um, and like, what is the rate of change necessary? in terms of people's individual behaviors that ladder up into larger social patterns of like, for example, energy demand. Um, what is the, what is that rate of change over time relative to, um, our perceived necessary rate of change, uh, of, relative to a given problem. Right. So it's like, how quickly do we think we need to move relative to how quickly do we actually move? And it's actually, it's a very tricky problem. It's like, the harder you think, like the more you think about the problem, the, the harder it becomes to really understand how much we really know about the way that our behaviors will unfold across time, um, what we're really capable of in any given time frame, if we actually need to do something. Um, and then also our ability to assess the seriousness or the risk associated with certain actions um, using the current tools that we have at our, uh, you know, available to us at the moment, which is something that's a whole, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit, because I think this plays a massive role that is is largely invisible to most people. The way that we interact with information presently, I think has a lot to do with the inability to transform concern into sustainable action that does actually ladder up um, in a material and pragmatic way, a durable way across time. I think the majority of the way that the current modes of communication and our current social media activity, the way that they channel or catalyze information flows, uh, ironically, it's also this linear model where it ends up with just a bunch of waste heat that doesn't really produce a lot of um, meaningful, durable artifacts or or outputs. Uh, And so what would it look like to have a new, um, what would it look like to have information systems that simultaneously allow for us to make sense of reality through more distributed sense making systems and and the flow of information analogous to what we have now on social media, but that also incorporates this question of accountability, this question of what are you doing about it, not what are you saying about it, what are you actually spending your time doing, building, creating, who are you helping? Like how do you begin to how do you begin to bridge that gap? Because right now it's far too easy for people to get the psychological Feedback They want without doing the hard work required to make any meaningful change and then also treat everybody else who's not working on the exact problem that they're working on from the same perspective that they're working on it from treat those other people as if they are, you know, the, the, the primary threat to human survival and therefore generate a lot more um, contention and animosity than is otherwise necessary.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um that's a really good point. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what these systems, uh, what, what they might look like and how we might, how we might engineer them. It just makes me think that, you know, our, like the attention economy has, uh, like what we're incentivized to do is just signal, uh, positive things. And we get rewarded through likes and all that. And from those interactions, like there's like a second order effect of if we have ways of monetizing that, those interactions through you know sales of books or all of that, um, That's like the, I don't think the incentives are aligned well enough to bring about the sorts of actions that we need. And, um, it's just very, very, it's very easy just to signal, uh, to virtue signal to say like, Oh, this is what we should be doing, blah, 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 without actually translating that into action.
1: Well, The the whole model is, is, is it's, it's based off this paradigm of like signal, generate a reaction and then extract some sort of local economic gain based on the reaction you generated. Right. whether you're uh, a new media company or whether you're whether people are making inflammatory videos on YouTube or you know you know whatever sort of game that someone's running on Twitter in terms of their persona and charging for ebooks or whatever the I mean people are doing this along so many different dimensions, whether it's the manosphere or you know feminism or whatever everyone's running their own little game in terms of you know. Presumably bettering the world, but in reality, oftentimes it doesn't ladder up into anything other than someone uh, increasing their own status or extracting some sort of micropayment, so to speak, from from the, the society at large. And so then the question is well, what does it actually look like for people to network together in a way where we hold each other accountable to meaningful outputs that actually ladder up into projects that move toward our? our, our image of a desired future. Uh, and I think we're, we're figuring that out. We're still trying to figure that out. People are testing the waters. People are creating new new systems, new options, new ways of making sense that are um, learning these lessons from, from sort of the risks we've introduced in, in the first wave of social media. Um, yeah, and we're, we're mid-experiment. And we'll see, see where this starts to move.
0: Yeah, so what sort of uh, tools are you aware of or what are you working on in particular? And I'm really curious about how this feeds into ideas of of money because, you know, money is like one of the largest incentives Mm -hmm. we have and it seems to be like there's a reason why people engage in these games to, you know, uh, get attention and then try to sell things and it's survival, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's this big clash that a lot of people feel today. I mean, I think we're speaking about it we were speaking a bit about it at the start of this. It's like, there's the life, there's the things I want to be doing. And then there's that, which is financially viable. And the trick that many of us, the the game that many of us seem to be playing is, or moving towards is trying to get that alignment there so that we can be doing things that are uh, beneficial, net beneficial to to the world, but also allow us to survive. Like, I think this conversation is, you know, I would say hopefully contributing to the, you know, the, the good of the world, but I'm not really receiving uh, a, a means of I, I can't survive just off doing these conversations uh, as of yet. So there's, um, how do you see these, uh, how, how do you see us creating tools to create this alignment and how does money fit into the, into the equation?
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that's a huge conversation. Um, yeah, that, that relates quite a bit to some of the things that I've I've written and published online around, the evolution of our monetary systems and our what are really at a fundamental level um systems that we use for representing value in the world right how do we represent um because the, the fundamental i mean we should probably before going too deeply into it I, I view this i like to think of many different kinds of systems so including including the evolution of language including the evolution of money um, including certain ways of uh, of, of of representing um, representing art and value, but largely linguistic and and monetary uh, as something of a uh, like a, a coherence um, like a coherence mechanism is something that I, I would add. it's a phrase I think is quite appropriate. And what I mean by a coherence mechanism is that if you look at the fundamental problem of attempting to scale social groups is you have this issue where if you and I are walking together and we spend every moment together and we live together, we eat together, we hunt together, we do everything together. There is no accounting problem, right? We know each other. We have very rich mental models of one another and there's no divergence there. Right. That being said, Uh, it's also somewhat limiting for you and I to have to remain completely coupled to one another throughout time. And so the entire process of social evolution and social scaling and complexification has been this process of developing ways to solve that fundamental tension, uh, such that we are simultaneously capable of bringing the information. So freeing individuals within our social systems to explore more of reality whether that's physical reality whether that's conceptual or abstract reality social reality you know the space of ideas the space of new possible technologies um, how do you free people to 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 explore that while also retaining the capacity for the network of individuals to have a kind of collective agency together um, such that those trust relationships are preserved such that people can believe that the representations that other people are putting forward as, you know, as in regard to their past, their present and their desired future, how can we, how can we believe and trust that those are, those are accurate. Right. And so then we have all of these, you know, different solutions and different social trajectories of evolution in terms of, well, how do we solve those sort of accounting problems as societies grow? And, um, you know, without going into the entire history of money, I can, you know, just refer people to the essays that I wrote in terms of. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'll link them.
1: Yeah. Um, there's this fundamental issue where we've come to a place now where we have very low resolution representations. We have, you know, here in the United States, we have the dollar, right? Uh, I'm not sure where you are at the moment. Are you in Australia at the moment? Yeah. Also the dollar the Australian dollar. Um, and so, and in, in different countries, we have different unitary uh, abstractions that we've decided to use to represent uh, effectively all possible forms of human value, right? And the, the reason that we got here in the way that we did fundamentally is because we optimized for the representations of value that reduce transactional friction, right? We increased the flow, right? So if you wanted to go into a marketplace, when we were first developing, you know, you know, 10,000, 15,000 years ago, when we were first starting to scale um, city state level structures um, and you actually had people coming from different cultures and different locations with different value systems, what was the common denominator that allowed for and that minimized transactional friction and that allowed for the sort of um, economic metabolism within that space to actually emerge and stabilize? Well, it, you know, what we did is we made a sort of sacrifice and we said, listen, all of these ways that we were representing the unique traits of these different kinds of value in our, in our life, um, we're going to begin homogenizing them. And we didn't do that explicitly, right? We did it pragmatically. We did it functionally. We did it because it worked at first and then it worked quite well for a while. But then there's this question of, okay, well, is there a sort of potential function of, of like lost value that also grows alongside the compression of your symbols for representing value. And so I think we've, we've brought ourselves to a place where the games that we play and the way that we represent value in our world um, have dramatically separated themselves from the world of values that the human being understands innately, right? And so that's why it's so easy for people to recognize that, um, or it also it's so easy for people to blame money As the sort of corrupting factor in the world right because fundamentally if you're going to represent all value only using money first of all you're gonna miss out on a lot of human value Um, and second of all uh, you also open up this weird space which I think is also common to many systems many representative systems that are that are like this Uh, you open up this space where people begin to play a metagame, like presumably there's a connection between behavior, actual people's behavior, somebody growing a potato or somebody creating a, a software application that improves people's lives or someone doing something that produces something meaningful. Presumably there's a direct connection between that and the abstract representation of that value that they then accumulate and can use for other goods or services. And, you know, there's always some connectivity there, but what happens when you begin to play a game where, instead of actually playing a game where generating more of that value um, or getting more of those value symbols requires creating actual value. If you're able to decouple those, ideally the best world from the perspective of someone who just wants to acquire those symbols is to gain the symbols without adding the value. That's the cheapest way to get the money, right? And so because it's the cheapest way to get the money, because it's the path of least resistance, we see entire industries popping up around effectively purely A, either extracting those symbols without adding back any value to the system or inflating the space of those symbols so that they can more easily have more themselves before that inflation cascades the rest of the system, right? So we see these fundamental issues with the way that we represent value. First of all, it cuts off a lot of human values that we actually care about but don't represent. And second of all, it encourages the playing of extremely parasitic and destabilizing games. Um, and we're in a position in our society right now where we're sort of, I think, at the end of our rope along both of those dimensions. We can no longer afford to not represent other aspects that we value in our our representative tools, such as our currencies. And simultaneously, we are extremely top-heavy in terms of the amount of economic growth um, that is in our representations of economic growth that comes from purely these sort of inflationary or extractive gains that have very little to do with the hard underlying problems of real value creation. And so then the question is like, how do we make that transition? And I think a lot of it has to do with the experiments that we're running right now with alternative currencies, the way that we're, because all that is really like from the deepest perspective that I can muster is a different way of talking about value. And we're experimenting with a different way of talking about value and a different way of um, managing, like taking the management of the system of value itself and its evolution and trying to subject it to some sort of um, non-arbitrary evolutionary rule set that is outside the hands of uh, corruptibility, right? So can you create systems that can transcend um, governance structures that are obviously captured or obviously corrupted, right? Which is why one of the things that I think is most interesting about Bitcoin is that I really do believe it's the 1st supranational um, infrastructure, right? really supranational distributed infrastructure that couldn't be destroyed fully by any state if that state wanted to, and through its full effort at it. Um, Now, some people would argue with that perspective, but it is very interesting that we've seeded something, it has taken root, and it has effectively become global. um, And it is thus far operating in a way that is beyond this nation state paradigm. And I think that's a fascinating first step towards the next paradigm of systems that are capable simultaneously of um self-directed evolution right uh at a scale far beyond uh the kind of government or governance systems that can be captured as well as the kinds of systems that you can build on top of that which allow for us to begin including far more signals with respect to our values um, with respect to the ways that we perhaps create economic networks with each other, uh, the way that we map our representations of value to um, the good, the need for certain goods. Right. So then we can start saying, you know, I know this is a long way to answering the initial parts of your question, which is like, how can I no, eat based good. on my podcast? Good. Right. But like if we want to talk about like how can we eat based on the podcast, what you need is some sort of, again, once we start looking at economic networks as metabolic processes, right. You, you then begin to understand that, okay, well, it no longer makes sense to have these extremely specialized structures where I rely for my food on a massive supply chain with eight different nodes in between, each of which is trying to get a cut. The farmer gets nothing, I pay a high price. I have no transparency in terms of what happens in between, what it's subjected to, whether it you know is treated well, whether it's properly refrigerated, whether it's gonna threaten my health, whether it abides by my own ethics, any of these things right i don't know that so then the question is like is it possible to simultaneously um reduce the 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 length of those chains but then also incorporate those higher fidelity connections uh, in sort of intentional network structures that people um build themselves emergently right like how like how do you actually create a network where you know you you produce something that the farmer wants like this is what markets are for right because we weren't like we don't want it to be centrally controlled because that's not we're not really capable yeah, of that. But then if you, if you entirely disintermediate or if you entirely decentralized, just using something as simple as currency, you get all these other side effects, negative side effects that I was talking about. So like, what is this hybrid in between where you're able to sort of, um, self you sort of like emergently design or co-create, um, intentional networks that are capable of self-sustaining. Right. Uh, and, and what are the scale limitations of those? Because, to be completely honest, like at least at first, those, the, the, the capacity of a network like that, like if you and me and 100 other people wanted to create a sort of self-sustaining economic network, the average capacity of that uh, or the, the ability of that network to produce something like um, a MacBook Pro, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do that, right? Yeah. So, so there's this really interesting question, I think, of experimenting with these structures beginning from the bottom up um, which is why I'm also really interested in like sort of the next phase of my life or the next year or two after um after I get married later this year is is actually moving into this space and trying to see how much I can live a life that is is sort of um uh very uh, that is sort of um heavy on both sides of of uh of the abstraction spectrum. So like on one hand, spend some amount of time really close to uh the earth, the the biological processes that are necessary to Fulfill my actual life, Um, but then simultaneously, instead of the traditional farm, which is associated with um, people who are not that economically integrated into the higher abstraction, higher value add, so to speak. And I I don't really believe that because fundamentally, everyone needs to eat. So we just we say it's not value add, but we all then get hungry. So let's let's be real: like, like actually farming and creating food is quite valuable. Um, But then there's this other higher ROI per unit time kind of work that's information work that's usually perceived as disconnected from the, that more ecologically in touch work. And is it possible to sort of uh, have a better, uh, have have a, a more, have a, have a life that's actually in touch with both of those. Right. Um, and then if more people are doing that, you know, what is, what is possible and what can emerge from that where first you're sort of taking energy flows out of the current, um, the current system that relies heavily on this hyper specialization and massive scaling using current low apps or high abstraction monetary systems. Um, is it possible to siphon that over time to grow these other networks such that as you grow, you never actually, you know, one can replace the other over time without ever actually losing capacity. Mm. Right. So we never stop, lose, we never lose the ability to generate computers, for example, or something like that. Um, and that goes back to our idea of don't destroy complexity that exists right? Keep and increase the complexity, but make sure that it stabilizes. So then how do you you then transition slowly over to these more, um, more distributed forms of um, self-sustaining, one might call it more like ecologically uh, integrated um, societies that take advantage of the, of the information technologies that we have and the fact that we can actually do a lot now without physically congregating in space and time. Um, We don't need, like we can have a sort of, like if you look at people, if you read people like Jeffrey West, who talks about, he wrote the book Scale, uh, physicist at the Santa Fe Institute, uh, mathematical physicist, something like that. Um, You know, he talks a lot about the dynamics of of, of cities as these engines of innovation, which is true. Um, But the interesting thing about that is like, well, okay, that's physical space, but can we not still conceptualize the same pattern of aggregating and coming together in abstract, um, informational space. Now that we have the ability to, um, to, to connect like we're doing right now. I mean, that's exactly what we're doing. Like there is a city in the sky in so far as the world of Twitter or whatnot floats above the world of the physical. Right. And it's the biggest city, right? Like you just look at the number of users, right. And you consider that a city. It would be the largest city on the planet, right? Um, and so beginning to think of these systems in those ways, and I know that was a lot, there's sort of a scattershot mosaic of ideas. Um, mm. And it's not a sort of, there's no final answer to
0: this, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're in, the, we're this in is the act- exploration mode. Yeah,
1: it's an active process of, of my thinking. I guess it's just sort of a window. I'm just trying to reflect the things that are bumping around in my head as I try to myself figure out how to. Um, map these problems onto my own space of of actions and solutions. Um, all of that aside, I am also building something myself, which is like a, we're calling it future aligned. Um, just myself and a friend at the moment uh, building it. And we're starting to take on some, some testers. Um, but the whole idea of that is to again um, from the bottom up, give people a tool to manage their own personal growth and development in a way that as they do so, first of all, it helps them balance all the different values they have. It's a much more values aligned way of looking at the world. It's like you specify your values and then connect the patterns of behavior um, that you want to you know, incorporate into your life, um, into those values. And then you understand how they balance with respect to each other across time, right? Hmm. Because it's not as if pursuit of one thing comes at no cost, right? It's always this dynamic balancing evolution of your life and understanding yourself as a as a behavioral pattern, so to speak, as a as a values targeting behavioral pattern, as opposed to some sort of rational creature that just puts things on a calendar and executes them um, or or follows some recipe for behavior. And you know, if you just have six pack abs, everything else in your life will take care of itself. Like, and everyone knows that that's bullshit, right? Um, so, first of all, like, how do we make a system that allows for people to to um, see their own personal development, personal growth through that lens. Um, it allows for people to build these things themselves. So part of it is, well, how do you build this landscape of behavior yourself and how do you build that representation? And then you can have other people use the one, if it's if it's effective for you, you can have other people use that same, um, that same sort of value, right? That same sort of landscape of behaviors. Um, and then ideally what we want to do is allow a real embodied social network to form around that, not the sort of social network where you can just easily connect to anyone um, online at any distance, but that uh, you would actually connect to people you really connect with in your life. And then you can start aligning behaviors and values such that it makes it easy to work together on things that are values aligned across time um, to actually generate and represent the artifacts of that over time as you produce things together. And then the picture that emerges as more and more people do this is an actual representation of this collective emerging values aligned space of of producing real artifacts, real things, working towards real um, goals and demonstrating their proof of work, right? Uh, And then, you know, you can imagine all the things that one could do with that if it existed, right? Um, Because in the world of, for example, like LinkedIn, like that's another big signaling game where the cost of fake signaling is very low generally. Um, and, and people, you don't really know what people are doing and people don't really put, um, you know, people don't really put skin in the game, so to speak, when it comes to, uh, that representation that they put out into society and it's going to remain that way until some sort of harder currency, uh, comes along and displaces it. And so, you know, this, we're really interested in that sort of trajectory for what we're building.
0: Do you see the um, the creation of? I mean, we've already seen it uh, over the past few years with the whole crypto boom and bust, and or just like the whole crypto wave. Um, Do you see that these taking shape, uh, these little sub systems that are connected to the greater whole, as having unique tokens or currencies that are in some way interchangeable with the global? energy flow or currency flow. Like I, I want to think about this, as you said, in terms of, you know, metabolic terms. Cause so I think, you know, if we, if we view uh, the flow of currency um, or the flow of money uh, through the lens of energy and information, I think it'll, it'll really do us quite a lot of, uh, it'll be very beneficial because, you know, like um, if you think about it, like energy um, uh, it's, the flow of money is space filling in a way because it needs to everyone needs to get access to it because it enables if you think of people as like individual cells they need the energy they need some form of money to survive and i'm just curious about how you see the the need for high resolution local representation um of value mapping onto the global requirements and mm-hmm. how the, how they flow and how they may transition because in, like something that will make sense to a lot of people and including myself is like right now we don't really have a, a, a global currency, but we have lots of different currencies that are kind of like the U S is kind of the U uh, S dollar is kind of the, the standard global currency in a way it's the one that we kind of um, compare to, but um, there is no single global uh, currency that we all um, exchange and uh, use as a, as a way of, um I guess comparing um our own unique currencies, or you know, like that of Bitcoin or you know the Australian dollar, the yen, whatever. So how do you see this taking shape? And is is currency perhaps the wrong way of thinking about it?
1: I mean currency currency is is, is one way of thinking about it. And I think I would be very surprised if humanity were able to to Adapt in the ways necessary, while simultaneously moving beyond representations. It's very difficult for me to imagine that. Um, I think the only the only the only path, and like and that's what currencies are, right? That's this, this coherence mechanism that allows for our individual perspectives to be represented to one another even if we don't know one another, right. Uh, Within, you know, and help within the system of trust that that means that there's at least we share some modicum of uh, mutual understanding of value, right? Like even if our society doesn't agree on anything else, we're still using dollars, right. That, like that kind of idea. Um, But, but there's also this question of, okay, well, what would a world have to look like for that not to be, the case where we had certain representational flows that satisfied that problem. Um, and I think what it would have to look like would be a, uh, directly mentally connected world in which there was no such thing or the idea of individual autonomy of mind was so transformed that we would no longer recognize it. Right? So like, I think you can get away without having money, if you connect all of the brains directly at high bandwidth with Neuralink or something like that. Yeah. yeah. But but that's a but that's a enough, but that's a yeah. radical supposition. And it's a supposition, it's an and it's a and it's a deeply ethically concerning supposition um, for many other reasons. And there's this question of like, well, it's also a, like, back to our earlier conversations, it's also a question of, well, then you do sacrifice some amount of autonomy of perspective and the novelty that comes along with getting that information from all those different perspectives. Hmm. Now, taking it back to the more realistic layer, um, assuming that we do still require currencies, as you point out, you do need um, a degree of liquidity uh, between those, but we're already in many ways, you know, the crypto, I mean, it's fascinating. Like, So 10,000 years ago in a marketplace, you could not go into a market with 10 different currencies and expect for things to go that well. Like if you're trying to, um, transact your business in in many currencies, uh, you're going to have to physically or mentally compute these differences. You're going to have to do all these translations. So there's a lot of friction in the system, right? Uh, Which is sort of, if you study economics, be a Kosian cost is what it's called, right? So Ronald Coase was this guy who came along and said, hey, listen, economics, you're kind of forgetting about all of the friction in the system that's required at the transactional level or the organizational level And that's sort of invisible in all of classical economic theory. So why don't we start incorporating this? We did it in the idea of these COSEAN costs or transaction cost theory. Um, And so, but now like I can, you know, on my phone, I can have hundreds of different types of currencies that can all seamlessly uh, interact. Then the question is, how do we use that technology? And right now, I think uh, one of the biggest failures of the cryptocurrency community is in a lot of ways a failure of imagination. Um, we're recapitulating a lot of the same patterns that uh, that existed previously and compounding them, right? <laughs> Making them even worse. in our first attempts, now this is the process. Of, this is the process of learning, right? So, like, look at look at the ICO craze that happened, right? The ICOs were modeled after IPOs, but the idea was do it bottom up instead of top down. But they went into that world without understanding that there was an absolute need for some amount of accountability as well as some degree of quality filtering, but there was no emergence or bottom up accountability mechanisms or quality filtering mechanisms in place at the time. So what happened? The parasites won that round basically, right? It was a highly parasitized round. Many people lost their shirts and uh, it gave the cryptocurrency world, so to speak, a really bad reputation. Uh, in some circles, right? Mm-hmm. Now, people are continuing to learn, people are continuing to build, people are realizing how, you know, that that many of these trust mechanisms, it's not about being trustless, about encoding trust in the right way with low friction. Uh, people are beginning to realize that, um, that a lot of what needs to be done is to replicate some of the previous patterns, but in decentralized ways, as opposed to, um, you know, just, have a decentralized free-for-all and these will take care of themselves. Um, trust doesn't go away. Uh, quality doesn't go away. Um, problems of identity don't go away. Game theoretic problems don't go away. They all just are, Are you just have a new tool set to begin approaching the same problems. And so I think month by month, year by year, more and more very high quality thinkers are attracted to these tools as Uh, potential tools that can be applied to the problems that they themselves have considered for, you know, five, 10, 15 years. And so we're going to see slowly. And this, this is, again, this goes back to this question of like, how fast do we think things should happen versus how fast can they actually happen? Um, I see things from a very zoomed out uh, evolutionary perspective usually. So for me, it's like the problem of cryptocurrency. uh, I I just look at it as a, a paradigmatic shift in the way we represent you know, the tools we use to represent value that's going to play out over multiple generations, right? Like how long did it take, um, you know, how long did it take the double entry bookkeeping that was invented in, you know, the Venetian markets to make its way around the world and embed itself and completely transform the global trade paradigm, like lifetimes, right? So things are happening faster now, but they're still, you know, I think it's unreasonable to expect that they happen instantaneously. Uh, I also think that it's it's unreasonable to expect that any evolutionary paradigm is going to get it right the first time. It's not how evolution works. Evolution is much more of a scattershot method that attempts to, you know, just like we we're ta- just like we were talking about earlier with the causal entropic forces model. You know, you you model and experiment with many paths and then prune back the ones that work. Uh we can see this model reflected in many different kinds of evolutionary systems, as well as certain organisms themselves, like slime molds. This is why you can use a slime mold to model the Japanese subway systems because it will basically, I don't know if you've ever seen this. It's a pretty yeah, cool. Yeah.
0: Like, wait, didn't they, um, they, well, I'll let you, I'll let you explain it, but it, it ended up, they, they let loose slime mold in something that resembled Tokyo in some way. And it developed a, mm-hmm. a, um, uh, a network that closely remember that, that, closely resembled Tokyo's actual subway system because it optimized for, yeah energy uh, flow across the, the system yeah so they gave it a,
1: they gave it a constraint system a physical model and they put food sources at the places where they actually wanted the transportation hubs to exist and then they injected the slime mold into this and it effectively radiated outwards many different possible um, options of, of direction of growth uh, once it started to connect to all the food sources once it connected to all the food sources um, it basically prunes itself back, right? And then you've discovered uh, a very efficient or effective pattern um, that is idealized for that particular um, topology of food sources or, or subway stops. And it, it modeled a lot of what you know, they had modeled alternatively using very uh, expensive computer systems and models, uh, but they did it with a slime mold instead uh, and got a very similar outcome. And so this is, this is how evolution works and this is how You know, and this is is, is also encoded in the idea of the Cambrian explosion um, where, you know, we have, sometimes you have certain tweaks to a particular molecule or a particular um, particular, uh, adaptive feature, right, or exaptive feature. Exaptation is this idea of, you know, okay, well, the heart didn't evolve uh, to enable the stethoscope to hear it, but inventing the stethoscope means that the heart now has a new function in the world that actually is adaptive, right? in terms of the doctor being able to listen to it and use that acoustic information, um, in a new way. Right. So these are these adaptations. So you can have so it's, adaptations it's, 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 it's or using an adaptation.
0: It's using an, an existing like phenotype or characteristic and using it in a new useful way. Like the tongue, for instance, the tongue wasn't evolved to, for speech, not, not as I know, it, but now, yeah. the, we have it we can actually use it for for various forms of speech yeah
1: and then there are some costs like we can choke on our food which isn't actually which is, you know but but it's worth it like right we can talk yeah. and then someone of us die choking um <laughs> hopefully not on our own words right jesus not on this conversation um, but uh but yeah so so looking at things like cryptocurrencies and looking at social experimentation through that lens Uh, the way that I kind of like to think of it is like, okay, like you have to think of this, this process of expansion and experimentation and then pruning back, whether it's like how many currencies we're going to end up with or, Mm. you know, what technologies that we're going to implement. But then there's the, this other layer that we have to add to it. Let's call it the minesweeper layer, right? Where you can imagine that like you want to grow and experiment, but you don't want those experimental tendrils to land on the mines that blow the whole thing to heaven, right? And so, so then that's this question of existential risk that many people are very concerned with right now in terms of you know, uh, uh, the, the lines of adaptation and exploration that we are now opening to ourselves. Are we sufficiently responsible to um, explore those paths in a divergent fashion without hitting the mine on the minesweeper field and taking out the whole species? Right? Is, are, we, yeah. are we responsible, are we sufficiently wise to do this? Um, obviously, people have different perspectives on that, but the question in my mind is like, well, whether we are or we're not, we're in the game. It's the way that, you know, this this is the game we're playing, and the the price of admission is you know our lives and the future of our species. So you know, we we as uh, Stuart Brand said, it's like we are as gods and might as well get good at it, right? And it's more like we have we we must get good at it or the game ends. Um,
0: yeah, this is yeah. something that I, I've that is, I guess, troubled me for, I guess, since I started university, you know, 20, maybe 2012, 2013. And, you know, just, I spent a lot of time um, in that period reading things about, you know, just like the, I was very tech centric, like and you know, tech and science centric. And I realized that, uh, you know, our technological capabilities have just advanced to just, you know, magical um, to what well, we have like magical capabilities by, by the view, by the from the perspectives of, you know, even those from just a few decades ago, like we can now genetically engineer life. Right. And I was thinking like, well, now that we're at this we're kind of at the the helm of spaceship earth and where we, how we act has a consequence, not just for ourselves, but for that of all of life. And we have these tools that enable us to do just, you know, absolutely incredible things. And with that comes just tr- such a tremendous amount of responsibility and mm-hmm. the question of how we actually like what, compass, what map do we use to to inf- to inform our actions is one that really needs to be, is, is like the first thing that we need to, to figure out before we start even taking actions. Like we need to ensure that we're not going to take actions that result in catastrophic consequences, but also we need to really build uh, a map that works not just for our species, but for all of life and for life that will come. You know, there's this, a big focus in the effective altruism community about the importance of Uh, future people right the importance of sentient beings to come and um you know while it's incredibly important um we can't i don't i think we need to really focus on an ethic that not just that doesn't just apply to sentient beings but also takes into account the entire biosphere because we for one we will speciate you know as, as things do, you know, as organisms tend to over, over the years. So as, you know, if we look into a thousand years into the future, and you know, we've colonized the solar system and all, and all of that, we will most likely speciate. Um, if by our own hand, through genetic engineering, or just by, you know, you know standard evolutionary processes, then how... depends
1: what we mean by speciation. The, the idea of speciation in a, in a world of genetic technology that allows for arbitrary recombination is an interesting Definitional tangle, but
0: yeah, with a lot of divergence, a lot of experimentation, yeah, a lot of experimentation, and the the wants and needs and desires of each of those species, you know, for lack of a better term, will need to be considered, and the context that they are embedded within as well. So we we, we need to discover um, and codify an ethic for life uh, now because we are now custodians of of the planet, and you know, if we don't tend to this garden properly, then it just will, it'll be one of the, it'll be a cosmic disaster that mm-hmm. I have, I it just. So, I, I mean, this, this, is, this is the kind of,
1: this is the interesting aspect, these are the interesting aspects of um, these sort of platonic processes that I've been so interested in, in the sense that, like, when you say, there's a couple metaphors in what you just, you were saying in terms of the the stewardship of of the planet or spaceship earth right which would sort of um embody our entire species as a singular captain-like figure right and then the other uh the other characterization that you just used at the end of that which was uh gardening right the idea of, of tending a garden um and the qualities that are associated with that and so and and also our, our species as an emergent singular gardener, so to speak, mm. which is both of these are these interesting questions of okay, well, if you look at the archetypal individual in each of those roles, right, the 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 pilot or the the captain and the gardener, um, what are the traits? What are the personality characteristics that you want in those individuals? So in in a captain, you want somebody who has a steady hand is, is a way of, you know, one way that we've encoded that idea of stability and foresight and, and not being overly reactive and being able to appropriately take in the information and make the right decision at the right time, right? Not act too soon, not act too late, act at the right time, be able to, you know, maintain a particular disposition even when others are are losing their shit. Um, and and so that archetypal, re, that archetypal representation or those qualities of the captain, what does it require of our individual behavior and systems as a species such that those qualities emerge also at the emergent level of humanity as such? Um, we can do the same activity for the gardener, right? What does the gardener do? Well, the gardener is capable of, observe, uh, of close observation of a deep understanding of health, of an understanding of the contingency of health, of one thing upon the network of other things in which it resides and upon which it depends. The flows of energy, the flows of um, the the way that patterns change across time and what that implies for the health of the systems under consideration. Um, And and also deeper than all of that, a, a fundamental care structure for life itself, right? Life itself as a process, an appreciation for the rarity and the beauty of that, and understanding that care and respons- that care and that, that 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 beauty through the lens of responsibility and caretaking. Um, how do you get those qualities as an emergent uh, as an emergent trait of an entire species, right? That's why I'm so fascinated by this question of emergent systems design, and I, like I don't necessarily say engineering, I think it's an interesting – it's a more of an interesting, like, design and, and stewardship question, and even – it's, it's kind of meta because it's also a gardening question, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the design is, like – we design gardens, right? Like, we we can't control – like – the nature of complex systems is that we just can't predict what's going to happen, but we, we tend to them and we see what happens and we adjust accordingly. And I think that's the right, it's the right metaphor for, for dealing with this issue, but there's also the, yeah.
1: the, the that, that brings us back to another Petersonian insight, right? In terms of yeah. the, the, rep- the representation of garden of Eden as the fundamental point of interaction between uh, the human consciousness and capacity for the introduction of order within the greater tendency toward entropy and chaos,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. <clears throat> on your point about the the navigator, you know, the, the archetype of the the, the navigator. And um, I think a big part of this is like, and our ability to, to uh, chart the seas of, un, or to, to sail the seas of uncertainty, or just to, to, to navigate is the, uh, dependent upon our ability to interpret the environment, understand it and act within it. Right. And yeah. um, I want to take this, idea and then bring it to social networks and the information environments, mm-hmm. which we find ourselves in. And I, I yeah. saw a tweet of yours, I think, from like four hours ago, even, and it was about, um, uh, specialization and let me just see what the specific words we, that, that were used. Um, specialization as epistemic speciation, right? So, uh, because we live, um, in, the internet has provided us with the ability to select and create our own inf- infospheres, like our own information environments. And the problem that I think we're seeing is that a lot of those um, information environments are not compatible, or they they don't. Um, there's no coherence between them. And you know, this is analogous to you know specialization in general. Like someone who is deeply spe- specialized in one field. Will not have may not have the terminology to communicate effectively about general problems with someone from another special, uh, with someone who is a, a specialist in another field. So, a big problem that I think we're we're faced with is just the inca- incompatibility of uh, people to communicate with one another because their information environments have, have molded them to be just incommensurate with with one another. Yeah. I mean, so let's, let's. Um, this is interesting in the sense that it's one
1: of the reasons why I was attempting to place both language and uh, or grammars and monetary representation systems in this same larger category of coherence mechanisms, because I, I use that word coherence as to mean the capacity of a system um, to maintain a dynamic and adaptive stability and balance between the autonomy of its individual agents and its own emergent collective capacity, right? Which are constantly in tension with one another. And the same pattern holds in both of these places that we were talking about in the sense that, well, when we are observing um, epistemic or or, or specialization with respect to scientific domains, uh, we are seeing the, deepening of an understanding in a narrow slice of our window of concern uh in reality and as that occurs the natural evolution is to speciate so to speak the language to differentiate to create a a grammar that maps very well and very closely to that particular representation that particular space within our, our our intellectual exploration of the physical world and yet as different groups do that in their own directions there's this question of well how do they connect to one another which is the exact same question of um okay well yeah, yeah, at the level of currency right how do you say that you can have higher representative dimension for smaller networks or niches of, of individuals people or, or values-aligned individuals but still allow them to ladder up and communicate coherently as a as an emergent structure right and so it's like and evolution has been faced with the same the same process. And again, like the way that it does this is allow for, you know, this is why we see this sort of hierarchical networks emerge, right? Because I think the deeper way of thinking about it, I have this essay that's partly written, but like it's been partly written for a year and a half now. So I But it's it's <laughs> it's, so it's basically sort of it's like hierarchies as um like processual precipitates. I know that's a mouthful, but it's like if you look at like we see the physical structure, we see the physical pattern of a hierarchy, right? Um, and people, the archetype of the hierarchy is a is a pyramid. Well, why is the archetype of the hierarchy a pyramid? Um, well, I would I would fundamentally I would flip the question on its head and say, well, why did we see, why did we first see pyramids as representation of the processes that give rise to hierarchy? Because fundamentally, what a process, a higher like a process, the processes that give rise to hierarchical structure are processes that um, mediate between centrality or central positions and which which are which are more abstracted or more or larger or more generalized and all of the different layers of connectivity to increasingly small parts of a given network right so that 's why you see the sort of scale free networks emerge whether you 're talking about giant hubs on social media these connectors or whether you 're talking about the human circulatory system and the branching and the way that all of our blood does flow through and is pumped by our heart. But if you look at the actual levels of fractal differentiation, there's a very specific logic to exactly how deep the individual capillary or the blood needs to go or the structures need to differentiate so that it can actually get to the level of the capillary so that every cell that needs oxygen and, and, and blood flow can be um, supplied with that, right? So. What you really see is processes in nature that mediate um, central structures and then increasingly fine-grained levels of resolution that have increasingly high capacity to bind to very high-resolution parts of the environment, right? And there's a process that mediates between those, and that's what gives rise to the, uh, the need for that process. And the, the fact that that process, that platonic process, is so highly adaptive Um, that wherever it begins to take root or whether it's applied or wherever it evolves, it actually, you know, whatever begins to use that process or align itself with that process grows. Um, And so what would that look like in a civilization, right? Okay. Well, in a civilization, a civilization was centralizing initially, you see this, um, you know, you see increased density in the same way that we have our cities, you know, there's a much higher population density in the cities. And then when you have higher density, what happens? Well, you, you actually see vertical three-dimensional space beginning to be used because it's more expensive to do so, but it also simultaneously gives you um, the capacity to keep in- increasing that density of the central attractor. but you also get secondary benefits. So imagine if you were a king or a ruler of this space, right, initially, um, the, the sort of central brain of this uh, early emergent civilization. Well, um, it also comes along with the added benefits of oversight, literal oversight, right? You can see further around the actual structure. So you get this self-reinforcing pattern of, um, building a structure in the middle of the domain of this active process of differentiated evolution, uh, interacting with reality at different levels of specialization or different level of resolution, um, and then early on, well, how do we build these? Well, we built them in the only way that we can, the same way that ants build, you know, pyramidal structures as well. We we started with a wide foundation and, and it rose into a pyramidal structure. And that stuck with us in terms of our archetypal imagery and our symbolism. And it not because we impose that on nature, but because the structures and the processes to which we conform gave rise to the, physical realities that were then encoded as our cultural symbols passed down forever and now we think of hierarchy as pyramid when that's not actually like the reality of the the structure is that there's a particular kind of evolutionary process that gives rise to things that do produce pyramids under certain constraints right <laughs> so i know that was a, quite a, a long yeah, rant there about about hierarchies yeah, no, is fascinating
0: but, I just bring, bring it back to um, the need for um, coherence among worldviews and mm-hmm. social media networks, because um, if we are not living within the same, I can, I think one of the benefits that, um, we had a societies, you know, and let's say in the 20th century, was that there was centralized information sources, right? Which meant that people yeah. occupied the same, uh, the same worlds uh, more so than they do now. Um, now, the problem with, um, for one, internet censorship, but two, the ability for people to self-select and create their own echo chambers and their own information environments, means that um, the worlds which we occupy are becoming increasingly different, and which which may lead to combat, which may lead to, you know, uh, a coming you know, battle or uh, conflict because these two worldviews are so at odds with one another. So I guess my question is, how do we um, balance the, the benefits that come from a, plur- a plurality of viewpoints with the need for um, coherence at the global level or at the, you know, the species level or however we wish to put it, because it's becoming Increasingly obvious that we do need to have this this viewpoint of us operating as a species, as like this unitary, this single organism in on spaceship Earth, for lack of a better term. So the question is like, how do we change these, or how do we create new social networks, or, or you know, technological uh, or, or technologies that can facilitate this while not um, infringing upon like. the... the if this is to happen, there will be an infringement on people's individual freedom, right? Because we're saying, like, no, you need to have a set, the part of your um, internal model of the world needs to be coherent with everyone else's. This is, we, we need to limit, uh, we, we need to impose constraints in some way, and I don't mean this in some totalitarian sense, but, like, we need to have some constraints upon people's information environments to ensure the global or net uh, net positive uh, freedom. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I, I completely agree. Uh, I think it's hard to convince. It's uh, I think we have a we have a, because we are the individuals in the system. We tend to we tend to defend the position of the individual to, or we often tend to defend the individual uh, position and and right to sort of uh, uh, explore the information landscape unconstrained. But then, as you're pointing out, there's this interesting question as to what happens when everybody is doing that uh, and what happens when we don't um is it possible that actually unfettered access to information um and communication tools generates a far less ideal and adaptive outcome than um self-imposed constraints on those same uh impulses that we have right uh the impulse to more information Is, I would say, in some ways, evolutionarily analogous to the impulse for more or sugar or fat, right? Something that was actually quite rare evolutionarily, uh, that we have a a, a tendency towards a supernormal stimuli response uh, in terms of our adaptation. And right now, we we think and we often believe that um, consuming more information, regardless of the quality of that information or the way that that information is structured, uh, is generally. Uh, a positive. And I think that acknowledging that that's not true is a first step to beginning to solve this problem in a way, or not solve it, but beginning to adapt to this new, the side effects of our new um, technologically infused communication, modes of communication, uh, and and then realize that actually what what makes more sense and what is is far more adaptive is spending a lot more time trying to refine information create connections between patterns of information but not just the information the technology also the the sort of ethics and the morality of it this is the nietzschean task of making our own morality right um but not necessarily in in the exact way that he supposed uh which was sort of this this imposition of the human morality upon um upon you know whatever the the sort of next version of ourselves would become, as much as it's this question going back to the sort of emergent gardener or emergent captain idea, is it possible to to codify or create artifacts of our knowledge in our culture that, um, you know, our artistic represent, representations, pieces of literature, pieces of, um, you know, you have videos or, or conversations that, or even sayings or phrases that are capable of um, as they make their way through the collective psyche of humanity, um, they, are, they are the kind of thing that enable greater conversation, enable greater connection, enable shared values across the other boundaries that are simultaneously emerging in competition, right? So there are, there, there are ways in which we can communicate and there are ways in which we can put information into the world that will um, catalyze And foster a lot more dissonant behavior, a lot more chaotic behavior, a lot more uh, heat, for lack of a better term. And if we are incentivized by networks who profit off of that heat, then the heat is what we're going to get. And then we will destroy ourselves in that conflagration, because that's what happens with heat uh, if it's unbounded. But then simultaneously, you have this other possibility, which is, can we train ourselves? Can we come together in ways that can insulate from these uh, from these unbounded sources of entropy and create seeds of new order, seeds of uh, like, you know, the kind of ideas, the kind of representations, the kind of projects that are those sort of seed crystals of the of, of like, you know, we have a super saturated solution that we're in. Now the question is like what are the kind of things that seed the, the next structures that that sort of lead the paradigm uh that 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 guide the rest of the way that we are going to develop for the next 10 50 100 years like it's hard to imagine looking back if we survive a thousand years not looking back on the advent of the internet as this massive inflection point and we are therefore the beginning still it. very much in the thick of it, trying to figure out how the human mind should interact with itself and with other human minds in a world where our evolution has occurred largely embedded in space and time. And we've layered on top of that, the completely unbounded, mostly unbounded structure that allows us speed of light communication as an emergent organism and much like many of these other problems, we have not yet demonstrated sufficient wisdom to uh, to navigate that. But I do think a huge part of it is to um, to decouple ourselves from a lot of the low resolution, high rate of transmission networks, like things like Twitter, use them for what they're good for, but try to switch into modes of more embodied communication, having more conversations like this. But most of all, and most importantly, figuring out how to, how to transmute the vision of the world into really concrete actions and, and also understand that the real change is actually going to take a much longer time than we would like to believe generally.
0: Yeah. Or that perhaps we need like the the necessity is, you know, it's a a, a driving factor. Um, And I think that's like my biggest concern that I think it's definitely possible for us to do it, but the time frame is the biggest, is my biggest concern. I mean, there's, you know, the potential collapse of the biosphere, you know, there's like supposedly 50% of uh, species on earth could be extinct by the end of the century. Um, you know, 40% of insect species are likely to be extinct or threatened with extinction at the moment. And like the second and third order effects of that could just spell disaster. Um, so I just think while we have the potential to, um, Bring these changes about. The question of whether or not we can do so in the in the time required is um, is a problem. And as, as we've seen um, with the coronavirus, um, we aren't good at dealing with exponentials, like or dealing, you know, thinking about things in exponential terms. But that's what we're faced with at the moment. You know, where we're our time is in many ways characterized by exponential change, um, yeah.
1: or even in complex terms, right? I mean, I think there's there's this there's the first level of, of assessing something like the global virus, which is Understanding the way in which uh, the way in which our, our current modes of interconnectivity um, impact how we respond, or or how it how it spreads through us at the physical level, but then beyond that, there's also these interesting questions of um, how our new modes of connectivity impact the way that we process the information, the way that we make our decisions at individual and collective levels. Um, and and how we do that in a way that is, uh, you know, as adaptive as is possible, right? Um, as as flexible as possible, while also as uh, you know, effective and ordered as is necessary. Um, and it's an interesting question because I think I mean, yeah, it's, it's deeply related to this. These other questions of 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 how do we um, how do we begin to do a better job of emergent sense-making? But the fundamental constraints seem to be there, there are two paths that humanity seems to take. Um, well, three of you include actual collapse, but when you do see large paradigmatic change, you tend to see it either as a response to almost collapse, right? Near collapse. Um, so you, we have a deep, acute sense of suffering. We make changes in direct um, response to that. And then the next paradigm grows out of those changes, um, or conversely, uh, some small series of inventions or discoveries or accumulated changes snaps together in a way that dramatically changes or enables other technologies, right? Um, and then and then that grows and sort of inflates and displaces the old things. Right. And everybody hops into the new because it's actually attractive. Um, so there's this interesting question because like when it comes to, when it comes to things like, uh, all the collective action problems that we're grappling with, um, I am very skeptical that, so like the, the first mode, like, we just won't we won't consider collapse right now because, you know, there's not a whole lot to say about that. Uh, uh, but if, if you look at the mode of, okay, we require a certain amount of suffering a certain amount of visceral understanding of the problem before we react to it. It's a very precarious place because of the fact that um, it might be the case that that the same thing that's going to cause the suffering uh, is too much for us to handle. uh, And therefore it's a very risky strategy to rely on things getting bad before we handle the problem. Um, So then it kind of leaves this other, this other trajectory, which, you know, I, whether it's frustrating or not, to and it is frustrating um, <laughs> at times. It only really leaves us with this idea of like, well, ha- you have to create something. You have to create a template or a, a mode of being that is both more capable of what you know we have at the moment, uh, more capable of, of surviving, more capable of adapting, more capable of being resilient, more capable of playing nicely with the other ecological systems in which we're embedded, and is more attractive to everyone. Right. Um, I think that's cool. And then, like called I think I think, I think really that's, game the B that's the only in that,
0: the interest that,
1: yeah. yeah. And that's that's the only that's the only game in town is like how do you seed a solution that looks like that? And I don't like I get, the hard thing is now it's a race, right? Because like that takes a longer time. Um but it, it's it's kind of a combination of both things. Cause if you have a game these ish, like and like I have my own issues with with that specific framing of it. But I do like the fact that people are thinking about it in those terms. Um, If you have people who are increasingly rallying around this idea of developing um, new patterns of social um, evolution or adaptation um, that are far more potentially capable, um, if you have the life, like if you're building, if you're simultaneously building boats, next, like smaller boats next to the large boat, let's say that we're in the Titanic. If people were building a bunch of little escape boats, by the titanic as it sailed through the ocean like when it realized that like it was going to you know run into the iceberg um a lot more people would have survived um and people would have very quickly been like okay fuck this boat i'm gonna get on yes. the other boat right <laughs> so it's like but but if you don't have any if you're not building those other boats so to speak as the as the main boat is is chugging along perhaps towards an iceberg Um, people are going to cling to that main boat and they're going to do a rational thing. Like they're going to believe that that boat is unsinkable until it actually sinks, even after it like hits the iceberg. Right. Yeah. Um, So, so that's why I, I do think, you know, the highest leverage games that we can play as people who think about this and care about this are to try in our own world, in our own lives to channel that energy into actions that provide those alternative um, boats which you know which takes the form of living a life that is in line with that creating communities that are in line with those ideas um and then depicting them in a way that makes them visible and accessible to people who might not otherwise be inclined um to hopping out of that that game a boat um
0: uh, making them replicable and, so you can like take what they're doing and then replicate it and mutate you know change it in yeah some way. yeah it happens back. I to mean, the, ex- experimenting
1: you know. like simultaneously is the same problem, right? Like you want yep. those, like you want those different experience. Like, let's just call it game B for the time being, yep. but you want the different um, species of game B experiments to simultaneously, again, we have the same tension, be free enough to experiment, but also to be able to have a collective agency that can rival the, the net scale of the singular structure in which it's mm-hmm. with in, 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 which it is in competition with. Right. Yeah. Um, and mutual I mean it's it, it, there's there's a competition aspect, but there's also a mutualism aspect to it. Uh, yeah. there's a you know co-opetition um, whatever yeah, language yeah, yeah. you In, apply to it. And information
0: sharing and all that. Yeah. Like that's the that seems to be the I mean, it I think it is the optimal strategy, at least from an evolutionary perspective, because like this is the evolutionary algorithm for lack of a better term. It's been like the most exactly. thing, right? Yeah. And I hate, I hate to like
1: be that person who's like, Oh, well, it all comes back to this pattern. Um, but it's like a very, it is a very deep pattern. And you know, in some ways it's hard to imagine, um, given our limited information, given the fact that we can't see the future, given the fact that we don't know what's going to work or even what we will become capable of in the near future. It seems to be the only, it seems to be the only game in town in some ways. And, um, And yeah, and given that, given that that's the case, it also seems to be the fact that, you know, they're simultaneously the problem. So then what are the real practical problems? Well, the practical problems are like, how do you contribute to the different exploratory tendrils? How do you allow for information transfer of useful patterns between those? And how do you keep those from hitting the minesweeper problem?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, all grand challenges. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. That's all we have to do. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. easy. 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 (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I think we'll we'll wrap up shortly. Um, I was, do you, so I think there's volumes of books and uh, textbooks behind you, Uh, but if you were to share some that um, really help capture your thinking or that have really, been hugely beneficial for you, um, and f- well, w- which ones would you recommend? Like which ones have really contributed to the way you see the world? Ah, oh, man! All individual depends, thinkers.
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends on how long, how far we go back, but you know, I think Hofstadter is someone who shaped my thinking um, quite early. So, author of Gödel, Escher, um, in terms of in terms of understanding, also his his book, his more recent book, Surfaces and Essences. Um, is a really interesting look into how the you know the cognitive science of um, of analogy and, and relational information and meaning. Um, but also Stuart Kaufman, I think, is a really underrated thinker, um, not as well known. Uh, his initial work, which is a, a kind of a tome uh, called "The Origins of Order," is a really amazing book. If you can if you can make it through it, it's a very technical book, um, very large, very dense book. Uh, but it's it's also it pays off in spades in terms of understanding these kind of deep evolutionary patterns and and the way in which uh, the way in which the the image that most people have in their mind of evolution adaptation is 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 often a few ways. Um, one of which is that it's the process that gives rise to its own structure, and there's a whole other way of looking at it that says that you know there are certain patterns and or forms and/or processes that one might call sort of platonic that um, that also lend order it's sort of the scaffolding upon which like the the, the, the universal or ontological scaffolding upon which evolutionary processes uh, play play out um, I think that's a really unique contribution that Kaufman has made to the world that I don't think anywhere near enough people understand that it or have have sufficiently internalized Um, i think it's
0: represented in a way as like the tree of life because it's like Mm -hmm. it's it's bounded you know Uh, you can't explore the entire space to in order to achieve new heights you need to constrain um the pathway or the the avenues of growth and i I think a lot of a lot of complexity thinking is kind of embodied in this tree of life from what say complexity thinking i mean including things of like just issues of freedom and and constraints and, um, information and energy flows. And it's uh, such a powerful, uh, it's, it's just funny how, you know, you know, nature's the best teacher, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this is the interesting aspect about uh, trying to look at the world through this lens of, uh, well, perhaps there are certain sort of, uh, in the same way that the Platonists, uh, looked at the the geometry of particular rigid body forms and identified this class of structures that you know in their interrelation and in their exploration was so rich in terms of giving rise to uh, many other ways of manipulating and seeing the world around us. I think we 're in a similar position now where we really need to begin understanding what those kind of shapes or processes look like. At the systems level, Mm. and almost a a, a sort of um, Platonic systems geometry, if you will, right. So I mean, like tree-like structures are are would would be one of the components in that grammar. I mean, I think the just to name one other one, like if you look at the pattern of um, the cell, right, where you have um, bounded complexity, where one aspect is responsible for mediating internal and external flows, and another aspect is is responsible for uh, regenerative reproductive um and other kinds of internal complexity and in managing those structures like i think you can actually take that pattern and apply it mm-hmm. far beyond just you know the the sort of um uh, eukaryotic like cell
0: it's like the um, right? the problem of decentralization and centralization right like if you decentralize or distribute computation because that's effectively what mm-hmm. cells are right information processing um you apply this to companies, you apply this to city States or not city States, but like nation States, like you can apply this everywhere and it's, you know, got, it's, it's the science behind it. It's a science of companies. It's a science of countries in a way. Or that's, that's what we can come up with. I think, you know, a a shared favorite book of ours from our last meeting was the origins of wealth. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was one of the big takeaways I got from, from, from that book. Um, we won't talk about it here, but, uh,
1: that was what? Yeah. By, by Hawker, Right. Yeah. Which is a, yeah. I mean, that's, it's, I think he was one of the earliest, you know, he was one of the first people to really codify a lot of the insights in terms of the, the agent based um, representations of evolutionary theories and adaptive landscapes and really do a great job at applying them to the uh, sort of evolution Economics. of our economic interactions. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, I highly I recommend that to people all the time as well. It's hard for me. Like, I, I, get, I get that question a lot. And it's like, it's like asking, you know, what are you, what's your favorite, you know, who's your favorite child or something like that. <laughs> like, I have such a hard time. Like, I'm, I'm I'm surrounded by books. I'm always reading books and studying things as well as attempting to apply their insights. So it's really hard for me to pick favorites or, or it's all, it always depends on what, what someone's interested in yeah. uh, and, and what they're looking to learn about, you know?
0: Yeah. So if people want to keep up to date with you and your work, if they want to support your work, uh, how can they find you online? Um, yeah. Where would you like to direct people towards?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, Twitter is fine for now. I mean, I think it's the, I, 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 I'm I'm putting a lot of my effort these days into building this tool and these systems. Um, I think if people are interested in I'm increasingly going to be uh, looking for people to, Test these out. So we're letting we're starting to let people into the system, starting to let people use it in small numbers. Um, if you would like to do that, if anyone else would be interested in that, um, just uh, you can email me at uh, Matthew at futurealigned.com. Um, so awesome. that's sounds great. That, that would be something. Uh, we haven't put a normal website up for it yet because we're, we're we've been intentionally trying to keep things low key, but yeah, we're we're growing. We're trying to grow it organically with people who actually are going to use it and give good feedback and who really care about taking that values aligned um, approach to their behavior. And we want to make it, because I wanted to make it for myself as something that I felt really helped me um, fulfill my own potential really to the, to the mo- to, to the greatest possible degree along the most dimensions of my life. What, you know, not just academically or abstractly, but also in my relationships and, you know, human connection and personal development and growth in that, in that sense. So anyone who's interested in that, feel free to email me. Otherwise, probably just follow me on, on social media at Matt who's on Twitter. Um, I'll at some point be writing again on Medium. I have a lot of writing on my past writing there. I haven't been writing as much because I've been writing way more code lately than um, words uh, to communicate ideas with humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, all those links uh, I'll share. And um, Matthew, thank you very much for, for the time. It's been a great conversation it's always a pleasure sam well thanks again to matt for taking the time to have a chat uh, i really enjoyed it and uh, i hope you did as well if you'd like to keep up to date with what matthew is up to um, just head to the show notes at samhbarton.com slash podcast and you can find links to his youtube channel his twitter handle his blog uh, among other things You'll also be able to find all of the things mentioned in this podcast, like books and articles and all of that, there as well. If you would like to support the podcast, please consider becoming my patron. Uh, For as little as $2 a month, you can help make this podcast a reality. For information, just head to samhbarton.com. If you would like to keep up to date with uh, developments with the podcast, um, you can sign up for my newsletter on my website or follow me on social media at samhbarton. Anyway, until next time, thank you for
1: listening.